case you don't know me, my name is Wendy Earle and I run the Arts and Society Forum. Um, and it's nice to be back, at least on Zoom, after so long. And I'm hoping to organise some London-based events over the next um, few months. I don't know if anybody was involved in the recent or attended the recent Battle of Ideas in London, but we did have a couple of um, sessions on there, but uh, we have been absent for rather a long time. So this is the first session we've done since July, I think. And I'm really delighted that David Ireland has, uh, is able to join us because, um, well, I've ha had a few conversations with him so far and they've been really um, sort of, a, I just think it's got, he's got some very interesting things to say about working as a playwright in the current um, climate. And he's from Scotland, as I think I said, so he, so he wouldn't be with us without Zoom. So I think that's um, a, a bonus for Zoom. I just wanted to get a sense of how many people are, are familiar with David's work at all. A couple, a few. Good. Excellent. All right. Good. Um, so I, I've um, seen a couple of his plays and I really have, I don't know about you guys, but I, they're like um, having a sort of, you know, a bucket of cold water thrown at you. They sort of kind of both shock and refresh they they kind of make you they kind of reconfigure your thinking a bit around the issues he addresses so uh, I think this is get we're in for a really interesting discussion and he's got if anybody who is in London um in November you should look out for his play that's going on in the Finborough Theatre in um West London southwest London uh, yeah Brompton Chelsea uh which is going to be there it's, it's um yes so I said yes and I can guarantee that will be a real shocker as well. So if you, if you like being shocked, um, I would really book, book for that. Um, I think it'll be, when I say shocked, it's also shocked in the sense it makes you laugh rather than shocked in the sense that it makes you, gives you a heart attack. Okay, so in terms of the format of this event, I will um, ask David Ireland a few questions. I'm going to be pretty flexible so that after we've covered a little bit of ground, um, I, and when I start seeing hands up, I'll move into audience questions. So I also want to stress, um, probably unnecessarily in this group, um, that this uh, session is run on a free speech basis. So really, it's completely open to what you want to say, open debate. Uh, nothing's out of bounds, but we would obviously ask everyone to be polite and respectful in whatever you say. On David Ireland and his work, he started out as an actor. Um, and then uh, turned to writing plays, at which I think he's excelled. He's from Northern Ireland and his background is clearly a source of inspiration for him, perhaps even an obsession, dare I say. His plays have been described as dramatic, dark, unflinching comedy, and some critics have called for trigger warnings and accused him of grandstanding violence for laughs. Some members have walked out of his um, productions in protest. But as a testament, I think, uh, to the quality of his work, several of his plays have won awards, including Cypress Avenue, which I saw a few years ago um, at the Royal Court, which starred the brilliant Stephen Ree. Or is it Ray? Um, Ray, yeah. Ray, yeah. Um, and I was completely blown away by that and have since seen it again on TV. I'm not sure if it's still available on iPlayer, but you will be able to see his recent play, Sadie, um, if you haven't already, which is a, a kind of reflection on the pandemic and much else besides, and that's on BBC iPlayer, I and I would recommend it. 
So that's a, by way, a very brief introduction. And um, so, David, I'm going to start off with asking David a little bit about the beginning, if you like, because you've been working in theatre, I think, first as an actor and then as a playwright for about 20, 25 years. Yeah. I, I just really wanted to ask is how you developed yourself as a playwright, what got you started, what got you going? Well, I think when, when I was a teenager, I was very interested in writing, but I, I discovered acting and, and acting became a kind of addiction in a way. You know, I, it was a real adrenaline rush. Um, I was told I was good at it. I think I was good at it then. And then I, I, I became sort of obsessed with acting. And then I went to drama school, but I kept, I was always writing on the side. I was always trying to write plays and I was always reading a lot of plays. I was obsessed with Shakespeare. I, 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 I read Shakespeare obsessively and I wanted to be a great Shakespearean actor. My hero was Kenneth Branagh. So, you know, I, I, I remember, I mean, I watched, I used to watch his, uh, his film of Henry V obsessively and, and copy every moment in it. You know, I could, I could act out the whole film uh, right here for you know, but I won't. Um, the uh, so yeah, I was I, I was really I had my heart set on being a great actor, but it never really happened for me. I did my first job uh, when I was twenty one at the Royal Exchange in Manchester in King Lear with Tom Courtney as King Lear, um, and I was understudying David Tennant who was playing Edgar, and Ashley Jensen was in it, and Adam James, lots of terrific actors who are now like quite famous. I, I was drinking very excessively at the time. And I remember, uh, I've not, I don't think I've ever told anyone this before, but there was an old actor in it who I really liked and respected. And I remember I, I, I failed to come into work one time. This old guy was playing Kent. And um, I was late for rehearsals, which was a normal thing for me at drama school. I just kind of come in late anytime I wanted. Uh, but this old actor took me aside and said, uh, what were his exact words? Don't be another drunken Irish actor. We have enough of them. <laughs> you know? And I thought, well, I mean, that's pretty, I don't think anybody would get away with saying that now, but but it really woke me up. Um, and I sort of thought at that time, right, well, should I, should, am I serious about this? Maybe I should just stop drinking for a while and focus on my acting. So that's what I did. Um, I stopped drinking. I, I haven't drank since then. That was 25 years ago something like that um so I, I sort of stopped and then uh, and, and weirdly I seemed to lose all talent for acting once I stopped drinking <laughs> I went from I stopped working I, I did a couple of jobs that did okay and I was getting lots of work and then around the age of 26 I seemed to hit a brick wall and I couldn't get any work and I stopped working stopped getting auditions from the age of 26 till about the age of 30 so that was four years out of work completely and that's when I started after four years I was going insane just living in a bed set signing on eventually I got a job I worked at Costa and then I got a job uh, as, as at, the, at a job center I was uh, I was a switchboard operator in Paisley I was, that was pretty depressing and uh, at the, the whole time I was just writing plays I was writing plays about how depressed I was and how awful my life was but but plays that were very funny um and then it all sort of happened from there. You know, I started sending these plays out to people and nobody would really employ me as an actor. I was a tricky actor to work with, but people just started commissioning me and it all kind of started from there. I mean, did you start out, when you say the plays were funny, were they funny partly because you have, you know, you're very blunt 
and very honest and just say what comes into your head and write write it down and the issues that you're addressing and interested in are actually quite controversial issues is that were you picking up on things at that point I, I didn't real I didn't think of myself as funny I didn't realize I was funny as an actor I took myself very seriously you know I wanted to be a very serious actor I wanted to be Hamlet I wanted to be Robert De Niro and I remember for the first time as an actor being cast in a panto and I remember thinking, I can't do panto, I'm a serious actor. And I found I had a real talent for it. I was really funny and it was very, the more serious I was, the more seriously I took it, the more people laughed. And that was a real revelation to me. And I sort of approached writing in the same way. Like I was completely serious. I said very extreme things. And I'm not a particularly funny person. So it was, and I'm actually quite a shy person. So it, people were really shocked, people who knew me were really shocked when they read my plays or came to see my plays because I was writing, the first thing I ever tried to write, I wrote about a, a, a guy who was um, a, a addicted to phone sex and ended up, uh, the play ended with him murdering a, a bunch of sex workers, you know? <laughs> so it was, it was really dark right from the off. And then I wrote, I, 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 wrote, a, I wrote a monologue for myself about the Shankill Butchers which was really just, you know, it was just a litany of, 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 of murder. Um, so it was very dark stuff. I was writing, but very funny. And then people were kind of going, I can't believe D David Ireland is funny. And he's obviously got a lot of skeletons in his closet. You know, he, he seems like such a quiet, nice guy. My, my best friend then started, when he came to see my first play, he started calling me Jeffrey Dahmer after that. That was, uh, that was his nickname for me. Right. So you sort of, in a way, are responding to people finding you funny through shocking. Has that sort of evo changed, evolved? I mean, has it become more difficult to be shop shocking or easier? Have you felt yourself censoring yourself at all as things have evolved or, or just yeah. saying to hell with it? No, that's, that's a really good question. I'm very aware that other people are censoring themselves um, and people openly talk about it. I don't think I ever censor myself when I write. I just write. And I'm... I, well, okay, let me say this first. When I write, I just write what I want. I, I just let my subconscious be free and then I can edit it later. But I don't censor myself with a view towards what other people are going to think. I just kind of write raw and naked and truthfully at the time. But there is a thing creeps in. I'm not worried about what other people are going to think. But before I even think about a play, I go, is there any, nowadays, I mean, in the past year, I think, is there any point writing this because no one is going to produce it? There's not going to be a theatre that's going to be brave enough to do this, um, even if they, they love it. So it's my worry isn't censoring myself, but my worry is, you know, other people, to, to put it bluntly, other people not having my courage. Mm. So that kind of brings us on me onto the thing about how you come up with your ideas. I mean, where exactly do do they appear from? I, you know, I, how did you ever think of the idea for Cypress Avenue where a man saw his granddaughter as Jerry Adams, thought, he, thought his granddaughter, baby, in a pram as Jerry Adams? What gave you that idea? I remember reading a book about uh, Pinter by Michael Billington. It was a biography of Pinter. And he, Pinter talked about how he starts from images you know, he thinks of an image when he wrote The Caretaker. I think he said he was walking down the street and he saw a man sitting in a doorway. 
and the image really struck him and he thought about that image and then the play sprang from there. So I, 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 that struck me at the time. I thought, well, I'm, I've been starting to work that way and then hearing that Pinter did that, I thought, right, well, I'll do that. And I kept getting this image of a, of a baby that looked like Jerry Adams and, and an angry old man who was just really pissed off that this, this baby was there and, and looked like Jerry Adams. Um, and I couldn't get the image out of my head. And it just stayed with me. I just was, I just thought, I think there's a play in there. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it goes, but I think it's a, it's a funny idea. And then I was, when I was approached by the Abbey, um, who originally produced the play and commissioned the play, I, I thought, you know, the Abbey is the National Theatre of Ireland. And I, I didn't have any sort of uh, relationship with the Abbey. Being from Northern Ireland and coming from a working class loyalist background, I'd always thought of myself as British. Um, and I had no kind of connection with Dublin as a city. I didn't really know much about it. I'd never really been there or spent much time there. And the idea of writing a play for Dublin and being commissioned as an Irish writer, being commissioned because I was Irish, made me think, well, what does that, what does that mean? What does being Irish mean to me? Am I Irish? A play is usually, somebody said, uh, a play is often starts as a question that you don't have the answer to. So there was a few questions. with So first of all was the image of Jerry Adams as a baby, or a baby as Jerry Adams, rather. And secondly, there was the image, the, the question of, well, am I Irish? Um, what does being Irish mean? If I'm not Irish, why am I not Irish? Am I British? What does that mean? Um, so that was, that was the starting point. Um, and I swear I came at a time when I was really ready I felt like I was really ready to unleash something um, very uncompromising onto the world <laughs> you know I kind of felt like it was my moment I'd had a couple of plays on in Belfast and a couple of plays on in Glasgow and because the Abbey was a big theatre I thought if I write this if I write a really good play for the Abbey there's no there's no stopping it you know it could go to London it could go to New York it could go everywhere so I'm going to write something really big and powerful and funny and 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 unforgettable and and, and it's interesting because the play has been very successful but I'm very ambivalent there's many things I don't like about it and it got to the point where after a few years of watching it I couldn't watch it anymore you know I find it very difficult to watch but again it's very interesting that sometimes the the characters say things in the play that come from places deep in your subconscious that um, you're not even aware of. Uh, the, the whole the whole thing about you know Jerry Adams and what I had no, I just went with the idea of Jerry Adams being a baby. But then it struck me after writing it, I realised that of course as a child, as a, in a Protestant community, you hear you're brought up with this thing of you know the IRA are trying to kill us they're trying to wipe us out they're terrorizing our communities and they they appear to be these you know shady men and balaclavas these terrifying men with guns and there's no face to them but of course to us Jerry Adams was the only face you could put on the IRA even though he denied any involvement with the IRA he, he was to us he was the IRA so it was obvious to me, of course, if I was writing a play about that, that was coming from my childhood, that was coming from somewhere deep in me, this kind of childhood fear 
of Jerry Adams, which was a fear of violence, and therefore it becomes a very violent play. I could I could talk for a little bit about um I think I mentioned to you briefly about in a previous conversation about um the the legal problems we had with Jerry Adams, which were because it came as a shock to me. I'd never experienced this before. I'd written the play and they said they were going to produce it. And somebody at the theater had decided to send the play to Jerry Adams. I think their intention with this was to kind of let him know we were doing it. And there was an assumption that he would be okay with it. It was to avoid any legal problems, but it brought all sorts of legal problems because they then got a message from Jerry Adams or someone representing Jerry Adams who said that he considered the play libelous and um, if they uh, produced it, he would sue, which um, it's quite an experience as a young writer to kind of have your dream come true that the Abbey is going to produce your play. And at that point, the Royal Court and Vicky Featherston had come on board. So it was like my big break. It was like, wow, I have a big production in Dublin and a big product. It's going to go to London and Stephen Ray is going to be in it. This is the moment. This is my time. Um, and then to basically be told we can't do the play because it's libelous. And I remember feeling complete despair. And my daughter had just been born as well. And I was panicking, going, how am I going to feed my children? I'm not going to be able to work. I got in, I got quite catastrophic about it. But then it sort of, it became, the bizarre thing, it became, this was, it was, it ended up adding about three years to the, the whole pre-production process because I had to write drafts, not only that were creatively satisfying for me, but also legally satisfying for all the Abbey's team of lawyers. And so it seemed to be that any reference to terrorism in the play had to be taken out because it was, this wasn't coming from Jerry Adams or his people, but the, the lawyers felt that if we were inferring that Jerry Adams was a terrorist or he was a member of the IRA, then um, that would be libelous. And they were also worried that I was suggesting that um, one should, uh, that, that I was inciting people to kill Jerry Adams. Um, which I thought was, I, I thought it was completely absurd and it's quite an absurd play, mm-hmm. but I thought to read that, that play and think anybody could come see that play and think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill Jerry Adams. I, I, I find it very odd that you could read the play that way. Uh, and in fact, nobody read the play that way. You know, at the time, it felt like at the time, the Abbey and people within the Abbey felt like it was a real ultra-loyalist play and it was really kind of attack upon Irish republicanism. And then ironically, when the play was produced, I was attacked by Ulster Unionists. You know, they felt like it demonised them and, and said that all Unionists were monsters. Um, so yeah, this became a very difficult process of trying to be creatively free and trying to satisfy lawyers as well. And I had to cut several lines that I really loved but then I put the play, I put the lines, I snuck the lines back into the play over 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 the years. The lawyers receded into the background, and the thread of Jerry Adams receded into the background. And I just sort of sneaked more and more uh, of the original lines into the play. All right. Um, yeah, but I I kind of thought I thought um, I just, the whole process was very strange, you know, of of having to satisfy uh, getting notes from lawyers. Yeah. But now it feels like everything's a bit like that. You know, everything you write, the theatre come back to you with notes saying it's not so much. Now, instead of sending it to lawyers, I've noticed that what they do now is send it to the, a 20 year old who works in their office, who's an assistant, who they seem to think that 20 year olds are the experts on what you can and can't say. 
So they say, I'm just going to give this to my assistant and then you'll get in and say, my assistant says this line is very offensive, you know. And it's really interesting to me that it's usually it's people in their 50s or so who are, you, who are like, why are you, you, you have years of experience in this business. Why are you handing your authority over to somebody who's 20, you know, because because they have they know what's ideologically correct. You know, so it feels like it's just interesting for Cyber 7. It went from being, I felt like I got attacked, first of all, by, you know, from a sort of Irish Republican standpoint. Then I got attacked from an Ulster Unionist standpoint. And then by the time the play got to New York, I was attacked from a a sort of progressive woke standpoint, you know. (laughs) So it seemed to offend everybody, that play. Well, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Perhaps reflects the changes that have been going on because... um, you know, censorship of one sort or another has always lurked in the background of any kind of art, and particularly us, probably theatre. You have that that idea that censorship is something that could happen, but the fact that it's almost coming from inside the theatre world or the arts world now seems to be, you know, quite a significant shift. I mean, that's true. I, I don't mind people. If a, if a theatre or a director reads my play and says either, I don't like this play or I find this play very offensive, um, I think that that's within their rights. You know, they don't have to produce it. What worries me is when people like the play and they don't find it offensive, but they're worried that other people will find it offensive or they're worried that if they produce it, people on Twitter will start attacking them. You know, there's a, a real fear of being attacked on Twitter. Yeah. I notice you're not on Twitter. Is that right? No, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I think it's, for me, I don't, it seems like a very bad idea to be on Twitter, you know, um, I think it's most most people who seem to get cancelled or get themselves in trouble, usually it happens over Twitter, you know. And if you don't care about it, then perhaps you're more immune to the threat of being cancelled and, and uh, pushed out. Well, I guess we'll, we might come back to the issue of censorship and people might have further questions about that. But I kind of wanted to um, move on a little bit more onto the question of sort of politics and, you know, whether you see yourself as... A political artist where you see your kind of whether you see yourself as having a sort of you know role as an artist to do with um giving a voice to anybody I mean you've obviously got a background that causes you a certain amount of um anger I suppose that you're you're you know that comes out in the the, the sort of like some of your your work well I guess it's interesting because I don't consider myself a political person or a political writer um but it's undeniable that it's that it's in the writing I remember uh, as a child that I came from a very, um, you know, a very loyalist family. Um, my father, who, who died quite young, was um, very, you know, politically engaged, working class, conservative, um, and uh, um, very unionist. And I remember a lot of conversations about politics from a young age. Um, uh, and when my mother married again, again, my stepfather was a very political guy and, and very he was a real Paisleyite, you know, and uh, we were taken along to, um, I remember the signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, we all went to the, the famous rally that Ian Paisley had. Um, and that was, I remember that moment really stuck with me. So I remember every, because it was such a, a tense time, because there was so much violence and so much um, threat of violence on the streets, um, and it was a very violent area we were living in. Um, it was in, in, in uh, Sandy Row, you know, before. And then we moved to Ballybean, which was pretty violent too, but in a different way. Um, 
I didn't really understand it. I didn't understand politics, but I was fascinated by all these explosive conversations around the dinner table that generally people were in agreement. Everybody was on the same side, but people were still arguing about what should be done, you know, and, and how we should respond. You know, I even remember when I was 16 or 17, I was uh, working in an office uh, near in the area that I lived in. Um, and uh, I, I uh, it was the time of the Drum Cree standoff where the Orange Order were trying to enter through the village of Drum Cree. And there was a real sense that it could really kick off, like it could lead to civil war. There was a real tension in the air. And I remember people in the office talking about, well, what are we going to do? Are we actually going to take up arms, you know? Are we, first of all, people were talking about, should we go on strike? Should we leave our offices in support of the men marching? Should we go down there and join them? Should we, if it gets to the point, should we take up arms? And other people saying, no, I, I would, I would leave. I'd move to England. I'd move to Scotland. So it was always in the air. Politics and the threat of violence was always in the air. It always, you know, it interests me because I noticed that, like, in the business, in the industry, a lot of people will say to me, "Why do you always have to write about the troubles? Why do you always have to write? Why don't you write about something else?" And it's like I can't help it. You know, it's like it was all around me growing up. It was, it was, it was inescapable. Um, uh, and so I think you write about, I think most writers are driven by, they're shaped by their childhood and their teenage years. And you, you ultimately write about what, what obsesses you as a child and a teenager, I think. Um, so politics, but I never really, I mean, I guess I didn't have very strong political beliefs. I felt like I was just observing everything. But there came a point where for a short period, I became very Irish Republican. I read, which didn't go down too well in my family home, I read, I read, I remember reading this book uh, about the IRA by Tim Pat Coogan, because as I said, I had this idea, these, the IRA with these strange shadowy figures, and I wanted to understand them. I understand, well, who are these people that are trying to kill us? And I read this book, and after about 50 pages, I went, you know, I can kind of see their point of view. <laughs> um, and I was like, you know, it's, it made me see the upset. And then after that, I got very Irish Republican. And then I went back, I turned against that and became very loyalist again. I don't really know what triggered that. Um, uh, and then I sort of, I, I, I balanced that out. And I think I'm still in that balanced place right now. Um, although, <laughs> having said that, Nicola Sturgeon is pushing me. I'm becoming more unionist, the more power the SNP has. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the um, so I, I, when it came to writing, it was just about, you know, I mean, it's an interesting question because I don't, I don't feel political, but I feel like the way the world's going, it pushes me to be more political. And I, 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 I resist that. Uh, one of my heroes is a playwright called Howard Barker, who I was obsessed with as a, as a teenager. Uh, he said something along the lines of, and I mean, he was pretty Stalinist in his politics. And, and he said, um, I have very strong political opinions and I try my best to keep them out of my plays. Um, and I'd like to try to do that. That's what I, I ultimately aim for. I think it's not, it's not interesting to hector an audience or to preach to an audience. Everybody hates that. Um, but it's interesting sometimes to go against your own opinion. Like Cypress Avenue was in some ways going against my own opinion. It was kind of an Irish Republican play written from an Ulster Unionist perspective. Um, 
So yeah, either to be neutral or to go against your own opinion is an interesting place to start from. Like for instance, to sort of leap forward to um, Sere, the play I wrote that's on that you mentioned is on the BBC iPlayer. I was very right from the start. I was very strongly anti-lockdown and I was very strongly anti-mask. And Sere had been bubbling away for years. I've been writing it for years and I couldn't find the ending for it. And then the lyrics said they were going to produce it. Stephen Ray wanted to produce it. And I was like, it's not ready. There's some element to it missing. There's something missing in it. And then when the lockdown happened, it hit me like, that's that's the element that's missing. This character is completely isolated because she's living in lockdown. And she's furious about lockdown, like me. And she's furious about masks, like me. But there was no point writing a tirade against the lockdown or a tirade against masks. I, I sort of went, as I was writing it, the character was very closely based on me. And I thought, well, why... Why, what is it about the lockdown that I hate? And why do I, why do I hate masks so much? Why do I have such an, I seem to have a very extreme reaction, not only to wearing a mask, but seeing other people in masks. And is that strange? Am I strange or is everybody else strange? You know, that's what I'm saying about starting with a question. Mm. So the question of that was, why do I hate masks? Um, So yeah, I don't, sorry, I rambled for a bit there, but it's, it's, I suppose that's the question of, you know, um, being a political writer without wishing to um, harangue people. I mean, all that's that's really it's it's just fascinating listening to you. And one of the things, like as you sent me um, your play, uh, yes, and so I said yes mm-hmm. uh, to read. And I was quite interested in. I don't know whether this is going to be. You you had a quote at the beginning from the David Mamet about yeah. um, which seemed to be in a way talking about the idea of self hatred. And I was wondering how much that sense of, because one of the things that kind of comes out in your plays, I, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not keeping up very well with the situation in Northern Ireland, but it does seem like from, from, the, from what's, you know, seeing Sadie and Cypress Avenue and, and uh, reading um, the couple of plays you've sent me, Elster American and, um, and yes, and so, so I said yes, that there's a, an element of that, of, the, of um, the unionists feeling kind of under siege and like a, a minority within the UK and betrayed by the British, by the English. I was, yes, I was quite, I was just very interested, you know, the, in the way that you sort of like quoted that um, statement from Mamet, Dave Mamet, about the, um, he was writing about anti-Semitism and Jewish people hating themselves. Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. Um, I, I that's sort of been fortuitous for me. That um, I, I mean, I haven't been keeping up with the news from Northern Ireland. Um, I sort of the interesting thing for me is that I've stopped stopped following uh, politics in Northern Ireland, but that doesn't seem to stop my plays being relevant and being produced. Um, when I originally wrote Cypress Avenue, that was. I mean, as I say, there was such a long process leading up to that. Maybe Jerry Adams threatening to sue us actually worked in the play's favour because it delayed the production so much that Brexit happened and then the play was on and everybody thought it was a comment on Brexit, but it was nothing to do with Brexit. Um, when I finished the play originally, which must have been 2012 or so, I thought, this is a really good play, but it feels completely irrelevant. It felt like we were in a time of consensus, both in Northern Ireland and, and throughout the UK, it was a very bland time in politics, I seem to remember. 
Um, and nobody was, nobody, unionists seemed quite happy. There was no conflict going on. And then just a few months after I wrote the play, I think the flag protests started happening in Northern Ireland when um, unionists started objecting about the, the, um, the flag being taken down from the city hall. And so it was, you know, whether I tapped into something or not, what seemed to happen was that the play seemed to um, foretell something. Um, and with the, 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 the David Mamet thing, you know, and yes, I said yes, I, I, that's from a book called The Wicked Son. I mean, I love everything that David Mamet's ever written. He's, he's probably my, my greatest hero. Um, and The Wicked Son's a really interesting book because it is all about anti-Semitism. Um, and I, I loved especially the first chapter. I wasn't sure what relevancy it had to the play. I just, that play was written in such a rush and that quote was used in such a rush. I didn't analyze it so much. I just loved it as a piece of writing. And I think if I recall, the, the quote said something um, about, the, about this. He dedicated the book to all the Jews who hate themselves, you know. Um, the, the, the dedicated, something about dedicated to the Jew whose favourite Jew is Anne Frank um, and all this sort of thing. And that here is a book from your brother. And I took that. It was a big provocative statement because it's a big provocative statement Mamet's making um, about anti-Semitism, but it's quite provocative to put that quote from David Mamet at the start of the play as well, uh, because Mamet's a very divisive figure in theatre, um, and the and the quote could be seen as you know very pro-Israel, um, which is a um, a bold thing to do, uh, considering the position of most uh, directors and theatre people. So there is a kind of thing you can see when actors, when actors and directors pick up the play, they see the quote and they kind of raise their eyebrows and then they ignore it and go on. Uh -huh. But it was kind of like the way that quote in Mamet's book was a, a sort of challenge to the reader. For me, it was a challenge to the reader as well of the play. And it was about self-loathing. It was a kind of, the play is about Protestant self-loathing. Yes, so I said yes is, is about that. Again, the reason it's being produced, the reason people are talking about it, is because it's perceived to be about Brexit, but of course I wrote it 10 years ago. Um, you know, the play is about a man who um, basically is tortured by the, the sound of um, the, his neighbor's dog barking, and he goes to talk to the dog. It's a very surreal, absurdist, funny play, um, and a very shocking play. And he falls in love with the dog and him and the dog end up making love. And then all sorts of terrible consequences follow from that. Um, and it's really interesting having that play on now in, in the age that we're in, not from a sort of, you know, uh, Brexit point of view, but from the point of view, I mentioned this to you before in an email, Wendy, um, that the original play, when it was on in Belfast in 2012, I think it was, um, it, play, it's, it played the Belfast Festival and then it toured around various small venues in Northern Ireland. And I was sitting at my home in Glasgow and you get, you get show reports uh, the morning after every show. Um, and so I, I got the show report and the show report usually says something like, Actor missed a line. Lighting cue was late. It's usually quite bland. Receptive audience, good response. This show report was very dramatic. This show report said basically that a huge group of people in the audience 
took great offense at the play, left the theater in a huge number and waited outside the theater to harass and object to the actors in this tiny little village hall in Oma. And then the show report also said that the actors had been in a car accident uh, after the show and that the van had driven into a ditch and one of them had ended up in hospital and all that. So it was very dramatic. And then I rang the producer to find out what happened. And so the full story was that this church group had booked tickets to see this show. Um, and when the character and, and the, the main character and the dog started having sex, they were profoundly offended and upset by this and, and left. And the story was that some of them left in tears. Some of them were shouting at the actors. Um, and then they, they did wait up behind for the actors. And then the car accident happened because a lot, a lot of the actors were very upset and there was a lot of adrenaline going and they were driving along a dark country road and they went into a ditch. Um, and then Radio Ulster got in touch and wanted to do a programme about it. And they, they did a big sort of thing about, you know, I, I didn't hear it. I decided to just avoid it and get on with my day. Um, but uh, I was told that, you know, there was a, a lot of uh, angry people um, to demand to know why taxpayers' money was being spent on presentations of bestiality. And then the 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 radio presenter was was questioning the producer, saying, how can you justify this? Um, now, the interesting thing for me is that I, when this play goes on in Finborough, um, I don't think there will be any Christian fundamentalists or evangelical Christians protesting about it. I think if anybody takes objection, if there's any problem, it will be from... Um, you know, young progressive uh, woke types. You know, that's the truth. Um, already, there's been some rumblings. Um, you know, and I just I think it's a very interesting time because I think um, it, it's been a very interesting journey for me throughout my life about um, growing up in a like I say a loyalist home, but also a, a very Christian fundamentalist home. My my mother became a, a, a Christian when I was nine or ten. Um, and I, I have to say it made her a much uh, happier person and, and it made our life much happier. Um, and it made our home a much happier place. And I loved going to church. Um, I, I loved everything about it. Um, and then when I was a teenager, you know, I started questioning it and, and became an atheist and so on and got into heavy metal. And, you know, I was really obsessed with heavy metal. Um and uh, I remember at the time, uh, the PMRC and Tipper Gore and all that, they were trying to put stickers on albums and accusing people of devil worship. And then, and then my mother, who'd kind of ignored all this heavy metal and just let me listen to it, she was being told that I was listening to devil worshipping music and that I was getting enticed into Satanism. Um, and I really was angry and resistant to this. And it made me more rebellious. Um, and I remember... I think it was they were was watching Tipper Gore on Oprah Winfrey. I must have been about 14 or 15. And they were arguing for um, putting the stickers on the albums to warn people. And their argument was quite reasonable. They were saying, we're not trying to ban the music. We're not trying to censor the music. All we're saying is there should be a little warning for parents that this music contains sex or violence and it might be inappropriate for children. And I could see the reasonableness of that argument. But at the same time, I really resisted it. I thought, no, I, I know you're saying that and I know you're being reasonable and many of you are being reasonable. 
But deep down, I think you just want to stop this. You just want to control the conversation and you just want to control the culture. And I felt, I feel that, you know, I'm sorry for those people 10 years ago who saw, yes, so I said yes and were offended. You know, that's not for them. It wasn't meant to be for them. Um, but if I was in their shoes, I would think, well, that's not for me. I'll just leave the theatre and I'll go home. Maybe I'll ask for my money back. I think that's quite reasonable. Um, and again, I have the same relationship with the, the people complaining now, you know. Um, I, I feel like they might ask for trigger warnings and all that um, and say there's no such thing as cancel culture, you know, and, and it all sounds quite reasonable. You know, there's nothing, trigger warnings are, you know, in some ways quite a reasonable demand. Um, but deep down, I just feel like there's something more insidious going on. I feel like it's an attempt to control people and control the culture and control the conversation. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what the response will be. I mean, me and the director were talking about it, you know, the other day that that was quite reasonably normal to have a play like that on 10 years ago. But it's it's sort of unthinkable now, you know, 10 years ago, people had seen it was quite common to have productions of plays by Anthony Nielsen and Mark Ravenhill and Sarah Kane, you know, stuff that was very explicitly sexual and explicitly violent and and that certainly seems to have gone out of fashion you know people people say that they like to be shocked when they go to the theater and they like visceral stuff but um i think most of the time they don't really i think that this play really could shock people well maybe they think that other people won't handle it as well as they do or something like that so it's a sort of um an idea of judging others a way of judging others i've got a couple more questions particularly kind of relating to kind of the you know the what you said wrote about your future play, but um, we'll come back to that. I've got a couple of people who want to ask questions themselves. So let's, Josephine, do you want to ask away? Um, I too love David Mamet. Um, he's one of my heroes too. Um, and he said that an audience should not go and see a play as if to give blood, but they should go and see a play as if going on a hot date. Um, so one of my questions to you, because obviously you and he both deal with issues that are political. Um, what are you trying to get your audience? What kind of thrill do you want to give your audience? Um, it's not necessarily a message, is it? But it's um, something it, from what I could hear from you was the, this question of conflict within your own mind about what you have believed about polit- um, Irish politics, but also um, drawing out the absurdity of some conflict, it seems to me, in some of your plays. So that was my first question. And my second question was, in this woke culture, is there anything that you would ask a direct, not allow a director to do? I mean, there's a kind of diversity of casting and, um, you know, the taking out of lines, as you said, that you then slip back in. Is there anything you would say, right, that's too far, you've gone too far, I don't want my play to be produced at that level? Um, yeah, so, so to, yeah, to do with your first question, um, I, I think... Um, There's another David Mamet quote that I like um, where he says um, the the point, it's something along the lines of the point of writing a play um, is to bridge the unbearable gap between your conscious mind and your subconscious. um, And every attempt to do that is a failure. Um, And so I don't real, I don't think about the audience when I'm writing. I think if I thought about the audience, I wouldn't write, um, but I just, I guess, I guess the audience is me, 
you know, I, I'm, I mean, I remember Steven Spielberg hearing him say that, that it, he's, he's thinking of himself as the audience. What does he want to see when he goes to see a film? So he puts on screen what he would like to see. And I, I do the same. I put on stage what I would like to see on stage. Um, and I hope that I just hope that there's enough people out there like me who like the kind of things that I like. It's why I, I kind of, you know, in situations like that where you've got people from either, from whatever perspective, offended by your play or complaining about your play, they've got, if they've paid their ticket price, they're entitled to complain. But I do feel like you don't, people go to the theatre expecting it to be for them. You know, it has to um, appeal to their, if it's on at their local theatre, it has to appeal to their sensibilities. Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, if, if it was the cinema, those people wouldn't go to see, if they saw a poster for a horror movie, they wouldn't go to see that. It wouldn't be their cup of tea. So it's like my, people people need to understand my plays are like absurdist horror films and they are going to shock. And it's meant to appeal to people who like that kind of thing, who enjoy um, laughing at shocking things and, and enjoy being challenged. Um, so, yeah, um, the, the, your second question is interesting uh, about uh, what... So to, to clarify exactly what you meant, do, do you mean that if a director wanted to cut something um, because it was offensive, do you mean that I would challenge that? Well, that and the fact that nowadays there is that kind of sense of, you know, when we're casting, we have to be diverse in our casting. And sometimes the diversity um, or overrides the acting ability, I find, as a, an audience member. And just whether they, how much control you would want to have. Because I thought you were quite interesting in that you can be quite, removed sometimes it sounded like you can put your play out there and then allow it to have its reaction and be a bit removed and I wondered how far you would let that go yeah I I, I so when it comes to casting and things like that and questions of diversity and all that I sort of I feel like that's not my responsibility I feel like that's up to the producer uh or the director and um whatever they want to do uh is fine um and, and also the but there is, you know, um, it always becomes a sort of issue when, and increasingly it's becoming an issue when people, um, actors will, will say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like that line. And, and sometimes there'll be a very good reason for that. I mean, in terms of its offensiveness, you know, or it goes against their beliefs. And sometimes they make a good point and sometimes it's it's just nothing more than I find that offensive. I have to say most actors aren't like that. Most actors come into a job with, you know, a, an open mind and just try to make a play work. I do feel like I don't have to, I don't have any obligation to protect the audience. I don't have any obligation to protect the audience's feelings. But I do feel a certain obligation towards actors because they're my co-workers. So... If they're offended by something and they don't want to say it or they don't want the word said to them, I at least have to listen to them and engage with them, um, you know. Um, but, yes, it's it's all, you know, it's all a very tricky area at the minute. You know, being in any rehearsal room, um, particularly with the kind of plays I write, can be very tricky. But it's not even so much. That usually isn't a problem. You know, people voicing objections and all that isn't a problem because most of the time you can talk about that if that comes up. The problem you have is the fear of the actor because going on stage and doing anything is quite frightening. But with my work, there is there comes a point 
at the start of rehearsals, people are a little bit scared and a little bit tentative. And then it, it, it goes, um, they get used to it. It becomes sort of normal to say these shocking things and do these awful things. And then just before the audience comes in, everybody starts to panic, you know, and people start losing their lines and people start freaking out. Um, uh, so, yeah, there is. It's interesting. I always find that entertaining and interesting that uh, it's very, I'm sort of immune to it now. I used to get very scared. Um, I'll tell you very briefly. Um, my, I, I wrote a play called Ulster American, which was on at the Edinburgh Festival a few years ago, which was very heavily inspired by Mammoth. It was, it was very heavily inspired by a play called Speed the Ploy. Um, and it was about a big Hollywood actor uh, who comes to London to rehearse a play, uh, which he believes is about the IRA. And it's, it's, he's, he wants to do it because it's celebrating his Irish Catholic ancestry. He doesn't realize that the playwright uh, is an Ulster loyalist and that the play is an Ulster loyalist play. Um, and so it becomes a huge fight between uh, a Northern Irish unionist playwright, an Irish American Hollywood star, uh, and a, a, a somewhat uh, effete English theater director. Uh, and I remember there, there famously there's a there's a moment in the play which probably is the most controversial moment where it's interesting in this sorry I have to say as a side note it's interesting in this group uh, usually when I talk about this kind of stuff I usually have to say there's a trigger warning here but I won't I won't say there's a trigger warning here okay you can take that for granted um, there's a there's a there's a there's a moment in the play where the Hollywood actor. Uh, talks starts talking about sexual assault and he asks the theatre director if he had to choose any woman in the world to rape who would he rape now this was very shocking and people you know were shocked and people walked out and but you know but there was a point to it um and at the time I was writing it I thought god this is this is quite this could get me in trouble but I wrote it nonetheless and then I sent it out I didn't write it for a particular theatre I sent it out to lots of theatres it got rejected by everyone, every theatre. Part, part of the point, I should say, is the character who is sort of celebrating sexual assault is very woke. You know, he's, he's very progressive and has all the right opinions, but he's a monster. And so you have this character coming, a young female character who's a unionist, who is face to face with a, a woke monster. Um, and, uh, and I guess it was a part of the reason I wrote the play because it came from a question of, well, what would I do in that situation? You know, what would I, if I was confronted with a, a monster who had all the power to make my career, break my career, would I, what would I do? So anyway, I wrote the play and I said that I got rejected by everybody. And um, eventually the Traverse in Edinburgh said they would produce it, which I was shocked that the Traverse would be interested in, in producing it, but they were very supportive and very excited by the play. Um, and then I had lunch with um, a playwright called David Gregg, who's a brilliant playwright who runs the Lyceum Theatre in, in Edinburgh. Um, and he said, oh, I hear the Traverse are producing your new play. And I went, yes, yes, they are. And um, he said, well, that's great news. That's very exciting. And I went, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit nervous about it. You know, it's quite shocking and all that. And he went, oh, that's your territory. That's fine. That's, that's okay. And I said, yeah, but this one's quite, you know, quite extreme. And he said, well, what happens in the play? And I told him what I've just told you about the, the conversation about sexual assault. And I remember distinctly as he was sitting listening, his face went all the color drained from his face. 
and he he looked at me with an open mouth and he he reached across and he grabbed my hand and he said no no you mustn't do this you mustn't do this he got scared for me and then he caught himself then he realized he did it and he stopped himself and he, he said no 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 it'll be fine it'll be fine and i said do you think it'll be fine and he said yes and then he thought for a second and he said as long as you know there's a possibility that you could get crucified you'll be fine but if you go into it knowing that you could end your career and knowing you could get crucified you'll be fine and from that moment on i was fine and i now take that attitude uh, into everything you know it's it's there's so many conversations you hear people saying you know they're they're worried about being cancelled if i do this will i be cancelled if i say this will i be cancelled um and I sort of live with the possibility that I might well be cancelled, I might well be crucified, as one lives with the possibility that you might, you know, you will certainly die one day. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's the right attitude to go into things. But I suppose, what was the point of that? The point of that was there was, there was a few moments during rehearsal of that play for me and the director and the actors where we all were a bit like, oh, this could be real, this could be real trouble. And then the fascinating thing when the play had its first, because the first, before all that conversation happens, before the controversial conversation happens, the first 10 minutes of the play is pretty controversial, but very funny, very fast, snappy dialogue. It's, it's, it's very amusing. And the audience were laughing away and enjoying themselves. And me and the director and the assistant director were all looking at each other like, here comes the moment. And... When the moment happened, the audience laughed even more. They became, it became, they became sort of hysterical. And me and the director and the assistant director were all looking at each other like, what the hell? Is, these people are sick. This isn't meant to be funny. This man's talking about sexually assaulting someone. Uh, and there was a moment, there's, and as the conversation goes on, um, the, the actor eventually says that the woman he would, he would choose to rape would be Diana, Princess Diana. Um, and he forces the director, who is appalled by this conversation, but he forces this director to choose the what to say the name of the woman that he would rape. And because he doesn't want to offend this actor, he has to rack his brains to think of any woman. And he says Margaret Thatcher. And we thought that's the moment that's really going to push the audience over the edge and they'll be offended. And this old woman in the front row became completely hysterical and almost cheered when Thatcher's name was mentioned. And we were, we were all the creative team, we were all looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? What this, this play? I was like, what have I unleashed with this play? Um, and what, what, one of the things I learned with that play is that there's a real appetite for that. You know, people are hungry to sit in a theater. You could feel the relief from the audience of, oh my God, thank God somebody is just speaking freely and saying what they want. And we can all laugh about these dark things. We can all uh, we can all just enjoy ourselves and release it. It's meant to be catharsis to me. That's the point of theatre. And so many people, you know, find it cathartic. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. Very interesting. Okay, Simon, over to you. Hiya, David. Um, hi, Simon. Hi. Um, in fact, your, your previous answer leads really nicely into this question. I remember going to see a film a number of years ago called Man Bites Dog, where um, it's about a serial killer. And gradually, the audience all starts laughing at the beginning. And by the end of the film, nobody was laughing apart from me and my friend, <clears throat> because 
every other subgroup had become a, a target of this serial killer. And I, it's just trying to, there's a real kind of penchant these days for shock. But for me, the, the best shock is, is a shock that connects, not just shock for shock's sake, which, which people kind of trot, trot out quite cheaply these days, but shock that connects and has some kind of political content. So in, in Sadie, when um, <clears throat> Sadie's boyfriend talks about her abusing him, she goes, that, that's not real, that's not real abuse. You're getting a slap in the, I think it's a slap in the face, that's not real abuse. You know, and, and that's really funny and it's shocking. But there's a, there's a great, there's a kind of quite a strong disconnect there um, or, or sort of a connection between that and social attitudes. So when previously you just said that the different people would be shocked at your plays these days than in the past, for me, that kind of reveals that you have quite a fundamental um, kind of dislocation with society What's, you know, that you're out of step with society in, in something that's much broader than your just your kind of your loyalist background. And I was just wondering where, where if you could explain where that comes from uh, in terms of that disconnect and that being out of step to be able to spot um, things that will shock, but things that will also have quite a political content to them as well. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. I, I wish I knew. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Man Bites Dog. That was a, a, a really influential film to me because I remember in the same week, in the same set of weeks, I must have been about 17 or 18, and I went to see Reservoir Dogs, uh, Bad Lieutenant, and Man Bites Dog and, uh, over the course of three weeks, and it was life-changing. You know, It was like, this is, this, this is what I want to do. Um, I love Man Bites Dog. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I know the answer. Um, you know, I do feel out of step. I do feel like I was born in the wrong time. Um, but in some ways it's, it's in many ways, it's the right time as well. It's funny that when I started writing plays, they, they did well and, and, and people laughed, but there was a sense that it was, it was too much. People were like, oh, the characters are too extreme and the things they say are too extreme and it's quite grotesque. And now it doesn't feel like that anymore. Now it feels like everybody's changed. Everybody's become a bit more like the characters in my play. You know, you, you can't really, I feel like you can't really say my plays are shocking when you go on Twitter and you see the things people are saying on Twitter, you know. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm very heavily influenced by Joe Wharton. You know, um, I love Jordan, and he was obviously out of step with his time in many ways. Um, and I feel like I, there's a thing Aaron Sorkin once said, you know, who wrote The West Wing about as a writer, you can't, you know, Shakespeare's at the very top and then Chekhov and Brecht are near him. And then underneath there's like Ibsen and Strindberg and so on. says, you'll never get near Shakespeare. You'll never get near Chekhov. But on a good day, you can you can reach for Ibsen. You know, you can you can get to that point. And I feel like when I I, I, I reach for kind of Joe Orton, I kind of go right on a good day. I'm going to go for Joe Orton territory. You know, if I can write a scene or a play or a moment that's as good as as something from a Joe Orton play, that'll that'll do me. Um, but I don't I think to answer your question, I think whatever way I am out of step, it's to be embraced, you know, it's it's a good thing. Um, there's a thing Ricky, I think it's Ricky Gervais always says about, you know, um, it's a good, it's a good time 
to live now if you're a, a satirist who who writes that kind of comedy um you know because because people are sensitive and because there's because we live in such sort of tense febrile times um th there's a, a um it gives you something to to write about and something to fight against you can't you can't really do this kind of work in when times are bland uh you know but as a counter argument to that, I agree with Ricky Gervais, but at the same time, it's very easy for Ricky Gervais to say that when he he's already had a success and and he's already at the top, you know. It's and I think I'm kind of fine. I just kind of snuck through, you know, um, just in time, and I've sort of established myself and and I can still keep a career. But it is, I think, it's harder for young writers. A young writer who has my kind of voice is going to really struggle to to have their play produced. Um, but I do know, you know, I get contacted by young writers who who obviously are influenced by me and, you know, want to talk to me over Zoom and, and get advice from me. So, you know, there, there are young artists out there who who do want to challenge the, the sort of current ideological trends. So, yeah. Great. OK. okay. Jennifer? I, I've uh, um, seen that the Sadie play and... I do hope, David, you won't be offended if I say that I felt completely in step with the play, which I really, really enjoyed. I thought it was a very well-constructed play and the twist at the end um, was, was, was really, I thought, um, quite profound in a way because it raised so many questions about our conscious and our unconscious um, mind, I suppose, and I thought it was actually very, very well acted, um, which I think you can claim some responsibility for because it is a very well-written play. I suppose, um, I mean, I, I, there were several points, obviously, where somebody who's really woke might possibly take offence, um, but the one thing I did wonder about was um, pursuing the idea of um, child abuse and um, weaving that into what had up until then been quite a quite a political play. And I, I just wondered about that theme. But as I say, I, I won't say what the twist is at the end in case somebody hasn't seen the play. And um, I, th I thought that was excellent. As I say, it just brought so many things together um, in, in quite a, a, a challenging way. I thought it was, was an excellently ended play. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, 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 the question of, you know, Siri was kind of torturous to write. You know, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever written. And I was really pleased with the final product. Um, but it was it was a very difficult play. I'd had about twenty different drafts that were all radically different. Um, it was it was commissioned by Stephen Ray originally for his theatre company Field Day, um, which he started up. You know, it's a legendary theatre company. He started with Tom Paulin and Seamus Heaney and Brian Friel. Um, I, I generally I don't get it. A lot of writers get intimidated when they get commissioned by a big theater. Like some writers think that if they get commissioned by the Royal Court, it's like, oh God, I have to write a Royal Court play. But 
I always think, well, but there's been a lot of bad plays on at the Royal Court. You know, there's been a lot of bad riders on at the Royal Court. So you don't, you know, you're also competing with, you know, great people, but also very poor people. Um, but with, with Field Day, I had this, you know, it was on my shoulders, this kind of, I felt like the ghost of Brian Friedel. Um, I'll, sorry, I'll tell, I'll tell a side story about Brian Friedel in a moment. Um, uh so there were no there was nobody involved in that theater company who'd really written a bad play they were all giants you know so I kept thinking of Brian Freel and Seamus Heaney and thinking how am I going to write a play to compete with these guys um I I, I this the side story about Brian Freel I, I someone recently told me that Freel um I think it was actually about yes so I said yes somebody had told him the plot of yes, so I said yes, and and so he had heard about the uh, complaints from this group, and apparently he found it very amusing, and he said to this friend, uh, "I'm very glad that David Ireland exists," <laughs> which is like the best compliment. Freel was one of my heroes, so that's like the best compliment I, I think I've ever had. Um, but yeah, I I, I found Sadie was such a struggle to write, and I wanted to write. It was always meant to be about child abuse, you know. Um, and it's such a hard play to write about and it's such a hard play to write. And I wanted to be to be funny and entertaining. And it's very hard to be funny and entertaining with that subject. So there were drafts of it where it was very serious and there were no jokes. And then there were drafts of it where um, it was just like a hilarious rip-roaring farce. Um, and I just sort of gave up on it. I thought it would never, it would never see the light of day. But Stephen Ray kept pushing me because because Stephen's old school you know Stephen a lot of theatres and producers kind of give up on playwrights and plays but Stephen you know has an old-fashioned attitude that once you commit to something you commit to it and you do the play and um and like I say when the lockdown happened when the masks come in it brought out such an extremity of feeling in me that um that 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 fed into the play you know and, and and interestingly it wasn't when you talk about the politics of the play that it wasn't I think in its original incarnation a particularly uh political play but the politics is in it's, it's like every time I try not to write about politics and every time I try not to write violence and every time I try not to write about all these you know big subjects they keep intruding they keep finding their way in. I'm actually writing a TV series at the minute for, for Sky Atlantic. Um, and uh, it's a romantic comedy set in Belfast. And it's much gentler than the, the sort of usual stuff that I write. But even then, I can't avoid the politics, you know? And, and it's, it's quite hard to write a sort of mainstream TV show and bring in all the sort of complexities of Northern Irish politics and loyalist politics. So, um, but it's for me, it's just unavoidable. I wish, I wish I could write about anything else, but it just feels like the way the world is, I just constantly have to write about culture and politics and, and all those things. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, Breeze, you're next. Hi. Um, I love um, David, I love your attitude to uh, the audience that you know you write the play that you want to write about and we make of it what we will then. And I suspect you're going to get a lot of animal rights activists being very unhappy <laughs> at your next production at, in London. Anyway, um, I was going to ask kind of similar question to Jennifer about, about Sadie. To be honest, I was a bit kind of 
disappointed when uh, when her um, reason for her vulnerability, etc., was exposed as being what it was, and um, and that she needed counselling. You know that this kind of this is that's very of the moment, isn't it? That you know a strong woman can't be strong, but there has to be someone. She has to have these vulnerabilities and she has to have someone else help her out um, to make sense of it all. But, you know, that's my little thing about it. Um, you say you don't follow politics in Northern Ireland or in the six counties. Right? So, but you must be aware of the fact that there's a lot of discussions going on about a united Ireland. And so I wonder if uh, you're thinking after you've done your TV series, whether this is going to inform anything that you write in the future? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, I take your criticism about the ending. It's something I feel ambivalent about myself. Uh, I, I, I really like the ending. Um, I, I like the scene as it's written. It's, it's sort of, you know, sometimes a play has a destiny and you can't help it. Um, I certainly don't think... I, I, I hope that the message of the play isn't that she needs counselling, you know, but I could understand why there's a certain, there's a, there's, there seems to be a suggestion in the play that, you know, she does need help. And if she'd faced her problems, um, she could have, you know, she could have prevented her own death. Um, she could have avoided suicide by being open with this counsellor and so on. Sorry, I've just given away the ending of the play for anyone who hasn't seen it, but oh well. Um, but yeah, to me, I, I mean, I'm quite ambivalent about therapy in itself. So, um, and also I have to say, in, in a warped kind of defense, I'm really bad at endings. <laughs> I really struggle with ending. Like that's a joke, you know, between myself and other playwright friends of mine. You know, they always joke about, I'm terrible at titles and I'm terrible at endings, everything else I'm great at. Um, but yes, I mean, I have thought about the, the lyric uh, are planning to produce the play next year live in front of an audience. Um, and I, I, I'm considering revisiting the ending. It was kind of written in a rush and it felt like the right conclusion, but I, I, I do sort of agree with you that I, I do feel ambivalent about it myself. Um, but as to your second question about the United Ireland, yes, that's, that could be, that could be, an, I had, I did have an idea once for writing a play about a United Ireland and, and maybe I still will. Um, the interesting thing for me is that, you know, because I live in Scotland and uh, I very rarely get over to Belfast now um, and I do feel very disconnected from it. Um, and I do often think what would, if there was a United Ireland, you know, I, I, a part of me would never want to go there again. You know, I was the, the, the inner child in me, you know, the, the inner loyalist in me, would be horrified at seeing an Irish trickler flying over Belfast City Hall. So I'd be like, it'd be quite nice. I always have this idea, wouldn't it be nice if there was a United Ireland that I would never have to go there? <laughs> I would never have to, I could just stay at Scotland or England for the rest of my life. But it'd um, probably be a Brexit flag, not a, not a trickler. <laughs> it could be. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I, it is a really interesting subject for a play and, and maybe it's something. I'm always struck um by a friend of mine says a very loyalist friend of mine said um I said to him well, it used to be like when you were a kid 
when we had these conversations, people would say, what would you do if there was United Ireland? What would you do if, if they withdrew the troops? And people would say, I'd take up arms. I'd go, I'd get a gun and shoot as many people as I could. And you ask the same people that question now, you know, people who were angry teenagers then who are now like in their 40s and 50s. And they say, oh, this wouldn't do anything, you know. And they usually they say, just down tools, you know, it says they just stop working. It's just fine. I'm not going to, I'll just sit at home all day and watch TV. I don't want to, I don't want to partake in a United Ireland. So I'll just stay here and, and, and live the rest, see the rest of my life out. And I always thought that's an interesting kind of place to start a play, you know, like how, 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 how will, the, if there is a United Ireland, how will, you know, loyalists react, you know, particularly my generation who, who lived through the troubles. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I'm always, I'm always anxious about writing plays that are, um, that are set in, in the future, you know, because you can be sort of, you can get your predictions very wrong, you know. So, yeah, but no, it's an interesting question. Okay, Shirley, and then I've got an, another question, and uh, then I think we probably will start winding up. Shirley. Well, I, think I, I think you've just half answered what I was going to ask, and that is, is, is there anything you wouldn't write about? I mean, do you think there are things nowadays that are just too sensitive to, you know, to put any sort of spin or an angle on it that, you know, you can get away with, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I think uh, you can write about anything and often there's a, there's a quote from, the, not a quote, but there's a, a thing, as I said before, I'm a huge fan of South Park. I was hugely influenced by South Park and the guys, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I think are the guys that created it. And, and one of them said, um, when people, when people say to us, you shouldn't write about that, you shouldn't talk about that. That's the time when we write about it, you know? If enough people, there's something in me, I'm like that, that enough people say to me, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't write about that, I go, I'm going to write about that. Um, it's I don't know what it is, something mischievous. <laughs> um, I, so, yes, the, um, what was I going to say? Uh, about what I wouldn't write about. The, I remember years ago, it was around about the time, the, the Charlie Hebdo attacks had a sort of profound impact on me because... That was really a, a big moment for me because I noticed that a lot of um, friends of mine who I thought were like me, were liberal and were all the same side as me, they didn't seem to be as appalled by it as I was. You know, I, I felt so heartbroken for these people who were who were murdered for, for satire. They were murdered. They were very brave and they were murdered for 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 making jokes. Um uh, and I, people I respected and people I liked were kind of saying, well, you know, they were, their stuff was pretty offensive and, and their stuff was pretty Islamophobic sometimes. And I was kind of appalled by that, you know, even if that were true, that doesn't mean you have the, you should be murdered. Um, and I, I did think I had a moment at that point where I thought, God, if I ever did that, if I ever went too far and somebody shot me for something I said, People I would consider friends of mine would be secretly saying to each other, well, you know, his stuff was pretty offensive. <laughs> so that kind of, I guess that moment sort of radicalised me. And I did think, you know, um, for, for a time I did want to write something about um, Islamic terrorism and or Islamist terrorism, I should say. And I, I thought, again, I thought there's no point because nobody will produce it. And also I'm not quite sure there's no point just going for a topic without an idea. I didn't really have an idea. It was just a kind of thought, I want to do it, but I didn't really have anything to say about it. 
Um, and then I thought, you know, I still, you know, after getting approached by TV companies, I thought the, the story of um, the satanic verses and Salman Rushdie would make a really good, you know, like two, three part TV film. Um, and I thought, I wonder if that would be an interesting. I thought there's no way nobody would ever touch it. Nobody would ever produce it. There's no point even suggesting that idea to somebody. So I think, like I said earlier, I don't think there's any topic I wouldn't write about, but I'm 46 years old and I have like a limited amount of time left as a writer. Um, I, I don't want to waste time. I've spent so much time wasting time writing things that nobody will produce. I don't want to waste any more time uh, writing stuff that nobody will produce, which is difficult because um, now it feels like there's more and more stuff people won't produce. And on the same question, I feel like when people talk about being cancelled and all that, sometimes I think, well, who wants a career in a culture like this? You know, who wants to avoid being cancelled but just produce anodyne, bland work, you know? Who you know, I hear people saying, I really want to say something about this, but I'm worried about my mortgage. It's like, why, why do you why do you want a mortgage in a culture like this? You know, why not just be brave and stuff? Like like Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park said the same thing, you know, when they did their cartoon about Muhammad. They were like, as a writer, you're never going to be, you know, you're never going to have to die in a war. You know what? So why not be brave? Here's your opportunity to be brave. And if you do get killed, at least you got killed for something. Everybody has to die some way, you know? I mean, that's what I'm saying now. I'm, <laughs> I can change my opinion very quickly. <laughs> that's great. I have, um, I suppose it kind of relates to that and also to the, um, you mentioned in a, <clears throat> an email about a play that you've written and you can't get... Um, you seem to you, you're finding it very difficult to get anybody to produce it, and I suppose that is you know you are, you do seem to be a bit of a sort of like a director's dream or nightmare. You know, it's that sense that they you know some directors will look at your work and think this is a brilliant opportunity to really produce something challenging and funny, um, and other directors just don't want to touch it with a barge pole. So I wondered whether you wanted to sort of in a way finish up by talking a little bit about the future and the bit more about that, you know, maybe specifically about the experience you're having at the moment with your most recent play. Yeah, well, um, increasingly it's becoming, it used to be that there were always theatres who would enjoy a bit of controversy and enjoy a bit of, um, you know, oh, we'll produce this play and that'll get a bit of attention and shake things up. Producers who really believed in freedom of expression. And it feels like, you know, um, there, there's very few of those around anymore. You know, most people, you can feel it in the air. There's a kind of fear, you know? Um, so the question isn't really, it's not that this play is being rejected. I've written a play, it's called Take It On The Chin. And it's very inspired by Joe Orton. It's kind of a homage to Joe Orton. Um, and it's about, I wrote it in one week during lockdown and it's a very short play, but I, I was I was just pouring out all my frustrations about, um, about lockdown and about masks again, but I was trying to do it in a funny way. And the play is basically um, a, a man and a woman go to see a, a marriage counsellor, husband and wife go to see a marriage counsellor. The husband is very woke and, and very politically correct. And the wife is a, a gender critical feminist who refuses to wear a mask and doesn't believe in lockdowns. And they, 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 their, their marriage is, is in severe trouble because they can't agree about anything. Um, and, and I think it's one of the funniest things I've written. Interestingly, it's not that shocking. 
But in today's climate, it seems shocking. You know, there's probably less bad language in it. There's less violence, all that, you know, but, but things are so sensitive. Um, and it's not that I'm sending it out places and, and, and it's being rejected. It's that I'm looking at it going, there is no one to send this play to. There is no producer that I think, oh, that's where I'll go if I want to do something controversial or provocative. Um, you know, there's a, there's a point where the, the, the main character says something about um, she can't accept if a, if a trans woman has a beard, she can't accept that that's a woman. And that's a character saying that in a play. That's not me saying that on a stage like a stand-up comedian, you know. Now, that's not, that's, you know, the danger I think we're in is that you can't even have a character say that in a play. I'm not saying that's right. That she says that that's a character, that's a fictional character saying that in a play, but you can't even have someone saying that on a stage in a fiction. Uh, uh, and you know, there's 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 no indication that that's what I think. That's the that's the point of the play. It's simply saying that the whole play, I think, is about the problem of dissent. It's like, how can we allow dissent? How can we allow conversation? How can we how can we allow conflict? How can we actually allow theatre? Because theatre is meant, drama is meant to be about conflict. So if you can't have conflicting opinions, how are we meant to have theatre? That's why so much, so many plays are so boring now. Um, so yes, that, that's, and, and interestingly, I decided I'm going to, I worked with a very brilliant actress who's um, famous and very talented. And I just, I, I had a feeling, she was perfect casting for the female role in it. And I had a feeling, I don't know her very well, but I just had a feeling she would like the play. And I did something you don't normally do in the business. I sent it directly to her, not through her agent. And I said, I would love you to do this. It's not attached to any theatre. It's a very controversial play. It'll be hard to get on. Um, if you're offended by her, just ignore this email. And a day later, she emailed me back saying, I love it, I want to do it. But even with this very brilliant, famous actress, it's, gonna, it's still going to be very hard to find a producer. Um, and it's like I, I ring my agent every few days and go, who are we going to send this play to? Because the play has a, you know, because it's about lockdown and masks and all these kind of big topics and, and trans rights and all these big topics that we're talking about at the moment, the play has a sell-by date. You know, at some point it's going to be irrelevant. I hope it's going to be irrelevant because I hope that lockdowns and masks will be a thing of the past. But, um, it, it, you know, it's very, it's, it's very um, worrying not that the play is being rejected, but that I actually can't send it to anybody. That's the problem. Mm. Yes. Well, on that note, which does, you know, I suppose, you know, a big theme of this discussion is sort of like that sense of um, shutting down of dissent. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I'm very keen on as in society forum and I know the Academy of Ideas is really keen on is the idea of, allowing dissent because that is actually the way we're going to clarify our thinking about things and working out how we want to go forward um so I, I i just really want to thank you hugely david i thought you know everything you've said tonight i found absolutely fascinating really inspiring um and really observant so um yeah really great really great to have you on this um discussion on this forum and i really hope 
if, there, if I knew anybody, if only I had some influence, I would definitely <laughs> find a way of supporting you. And perhaps, you know, we'll put this up online and perhaps something will happen. I hope so. Something good. Because, uh, yeah, your work is, I've really, I really just um, enjoy seeing your plays. And um, I'm not going to make any great judgment about you, but I'm sure you're, you're up there with at least Joe Wharton. Um, Thank you. So it's, uh, it's excellent. Thank you. Can I just say something briefly? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to me. I think I managed to get quite a lot off my chest. This was quite therapeutic. <laughs> but I also, I think I ended in quite a, a pessimistic note, but I think I am optimistic. I think it's going to change. And I think, I think my play will be produced and will find a producer. Um, and I think I meet a lot of young writers and a lot of young artists who are... Um, you know, uh, willing to challenge things and, and willing to say things, you know. Um, so, and I think that as, as older people, you know, it's our duty to kind of support them and, and yeah. help them come through. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, the, the Academy of Ideas and there's also the Free Speech Union, you know, there are, I think mm. one of the things that's really interesting about the moment is that does seem to me to be more dissenting voices coming out into the open than there were, say, five years ago, and or even two years ago. I mean, I suspect the pandemic has, you know, got a lot more people activated because of that sheer frustration of what it's, it implies, you know, what it implies for the future if, if we allow, um, you know, some of the measures that have, have been introduced to continue. And I think there are, you know, I think there are quite a few people who are kind of, you know, standing up more openly now. So, um, yeah. Uh, perhaps that's one of the things we can kind of look at in the in the future more is the sort of you know the space for how do we carve out a spray a more of a space for freedom in the arts, which you know it's just so remarkable that the art world seems to be wanting to control that freedom. It's just bizarre, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's something that maybe we can start to push back on more. And um, I really do think that you your your work and your bravery in this matter is sort of like is uh, salutary, you know, something we should all be trying for. So I'm very grateful. Thank you.